Hey, hey, greetings and welcome to episode 53. Thank you for clicking on that little triangle that points to the right for another episode about all things movie-related past, present, and future. You're the best. Regardless of whether this is your first time listening to this podcast or the 53rd, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to give this a go. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Last time, we flew back to the year 1959, sort of a crossroads when it came to the breakdown of what was called the old studio system. Pretty much meaning that little by little, film content was pushing the boundaries when it came to anything objectionable in the way of language, violence, nudity, approaches to controversial topics, things like that. I mentioned then that it was not until 1968 when a formal film rating system was made official. We'll get into all this and more, but before we do, let me first say that as of this recording, it's Saturday, May 28th, and I did a thing. Last Friday was the last day of classes for my seniors. They had final exams this week. Towards the end of class, two or three of them gave me the kind of challenge that I relish. They asked me to name every Oscar-winning Best Picture in chronological order. I stumbled twice in the 1930s, but once I got to 1937's You Can't Take It With You, it was smooth sailing from then on right up to this year's winner, Coda. The vast majority of the film titles they did not recognize, and yes, the sentence, I haven't seen too many old black and white movies, was uttered, a statement given the spotlight right there in my presence. So I did what any host of Silver Screeners would do. I asked them if they'd ever heard of Lauren Bacall. Once they predictably said no, I pointed to the enlarged photo print that I have up on the wall, just as you come into the classroom. It's her face with a little quotation underneath. If you've listened to this show before, you know exactly where this is going. I asked if they ever saw a movie from the 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s that was not for school. And they replied with a resounding, No! I then calmly, but calmly, read off said quote of Ms. Bacall, It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. Been up there on the wall all year, and I had it pointed out in May. In this episode, we continue with this theme of the movies getting all naughty <laughs> by taking a look at two films to come out of the counterculture era. Both have nudity, both deal with subject matter that would have been taboo even just three or four years before they were released, and both got Academy Award nods. I present to you 1969's Social Satire, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, starring Natalie Wood, Robert Culp, Diane Cannon, and Elliot Gould. And the dramedy Connell Knowledge with Jack Nicholson, Art Garfunkel, Anne Margaret, Candace Bergen, and Rita Moreno. And that said, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both films, then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for each one, then we'll wrap up with the poll results and the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. Join me as we rewind 54 years ago to 1968. There was a man, a man named Jack, Jack Valenti, born in 1921. He was the grandson of Sicilian immigrants and a native of Houston, Texas. At age 20, he enlisted in the Army Air Forces and flew 51 missions during the Second World War, and he earned the Distinguished Flying Cross. After the war, he got his MBA from Harvard and then opened his own advertising firm and began to work for the Kennedy-Johnson Tickets media campaign and was riding six cars behind JFK in Dallas on November 22, 1963. After the assassination, Johnson asked him to join him on Air Force One back to Washington. He helped write Johnson's first speech to the U.S. as president and pretty much became Johnson's companion and troubleshooter. Then, in 1966, Hollywood moguls wooed Valenti over to the West Coast to take over the Motion Picture Association of America. 
And two years later, 1968, it happened. Valenti devised the rating system and ditched the Hays Code, which for decades set a big fat no to objectionable content like language, graphic violence, mature subject matter handled less than carefully, and sexual content. The code did not allow for open-mouthed kissing and required that a man and woman in bed together each have one foot on the floor. No ministers of religion could be villains or comic buffoons, and absolutely no interracial romance. So no visible tongues, but blackface, homophobia, anti-Semitism, men slapping women, those things were all peaches and cream. But anyway, that was the Hayes Code, and it burned out like the dumpster fire it was. The film rating system would be a win-win, Valenti thought, for studios and moviegoers. More creative freedoms in the films meant that the artistic minds wouldn't feel stifled, and that they'd be better able to serve moviegoers who had urgent appetites to slake for on-screen sex and violence. And when both sides are happy, then so are the executives, who complacently fill the studio coffers with the financial fruits of their labor. Initially, the ratings were G for general audiences, M for mature audiences, R for restricted, meaning under 17 needs a parent or guardian, and the big one, the woolly mammoth, the king of the broadening nags of Gulliver's Travels, the T-Rex of the ratings world, the rating of X, the kiss of death at the box office. Both of today's films were rated I back in that day, so now that I've built this bastard up so much, let's do some screening. First up at bat. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. A strong contender for maybe one of the most distinctive film titles of its time. Just a grocery list of four first names joined by three ampersands. This film was co-written by Paul Mazursky and Larry Tucker. It was also the directing debut of Mazursky, and it was enormously successful. Pulled in $31.9 million on a $2 million budget. It premiered at the New York Film Festival on September 17, 1969, before going global throughout 1970. It's a movie that's a hybrid of social commentary, witty sarcasm, a few dramatic touches, and a time capsule of the cultural zeitgeist of the sexual revolution during that exotic decade of the 1960s. But instead of being a story about young college-age people or 20-somethings turning on, tuning in, and dropping out, Instead, what we have is two married couples in their 30s, past the newlywed stage, both with kids, not old enough to shake their heads at the counterculture movement in disbelief or disapproval, but not young enough to be in with the in-crowd. They're old enough to be living more traditional lives, homes and careers and fashionable clothing, but also still young enough, though, to wonder what it is that they may be missing out on with everything going on around them. The search for personal freedoms, sexual, political, the love-ins, the promiscuity and self-fulfillment through satisfying their sexual impulses beyond just their own spouses. As the film opens, the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah is rocking the soundtrack to accompany the aerial shots, the tracking shots, and the close-ups of husband and wife, Bob and Carol, played by Robert Culp and Natalie Wood. Bob and Carol, they're driving up these mountain roads heading towards an unnamed institute for a weekend retreat. And visually, it reminded me a lot of the opening credit sequence of The Shining, with a camera following this lone car up these windy roads in the middle of East Cupcake God knows where. Bob and Carol seem engaged in conversation, but apparently it's nothing too important for us to know about, since all we're hearing is this classical piece with these voices praising Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in notes so high that they'd crack the paint on a hook of toenails. So, as they're shining their way to this institute in the mountains, we're treated to different outdoor shots of the institute before they even get there. While the Hallelujah Chorus keeps going, without any transition, you see some people on the grounds of the place naked. 
old men in tubs, younger women walking around, and three nude women on their knees in a perfect row with their eyes shut. Meditating, maybe, or sunbathing? They reminded me of the three sirens from The Odyssey, or from the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where At Thou? Handel's Messiah stops, and we get right into a new piece that includes a harpsichord to the people at this retreat doing some kind of meditative dance. Couples with their eyes closed are feeling each other's faces with their fingertips, while the same three naked sirens have not moved a muscle group, as they're in the same exact spot and position as before. You want to ask them if they took a bathroom break. Then two guys are doing primal scream therapy as the sun is almost completely down, just before finally all of these lads and lassies with their liberated libidos are in a meeting room where the guy in charge is welcoming them, explaining the plan for the retreat that they'll go non-stop for 24 hours, two one-hour breaks for food, the only restriction is no physical violence. It's okay if they fall asleep, but try to stay involved and the whole monologue ends with him saying, we talk a lot about love, but we don't feel it a lot. Then everyone introduces themselves. 64-year-old Conrad wants to keep growing as a human being. Toby has trouble with men because she cannot say no to any of them. And Myrna's here because she wants a better orgasm. Bob says he's a documentary filmmaker and that he's there to research the Institute for a possible peace. And Carol says that she's along for the ride. Then a pivotal moment comes. They all slowly meander around the room, gazing intently at each other, while we hear the leader tell them things like, See the other person. Say hello with your eyes. Really, really look. Give of yourself. Don't be afraid. Lots of points of view shots and close-ups in these moments. Now, I say this is pivotal because it happens again at the end of the film, though I won't say how or why or in what context. Bob and Carol are doing this along with everyone else, but they look like they're really not into it, like they have small smirks on their faces. Cut to the whole blooming bunch on their knees in a big circle, screaming and letting out their pent-up aggression while beating the shit out of these pillows. The guy's hollering at them to get mad at the pillows, to scream that he wants to see ugly faces, and Carol is doing all she can not to burst out laughing. And then, it's Tia time. People are bearing their souls to each other and weeping and doing group hugs and sobbing, and, and now it looks like Carol and Bob have drunk the Kool-Aid because they have their own crying circle too. The scene ends with their group hug, including the leader hugging Ted from behind with melodramatic tears in his eyes. All of this is totally ranking on these kinds of seminars and group bonding sessions where people explore their feelings and emote to complete strangers and find their inner zen. And that good-natured cynical tone pretty much permeates throughout the entire film. Bob and Carol get home and get together with their more conservative friends, Ted and Alice. And they're going on and on about the new insight they gained into love and connection with people and sharing feelings and being truthful and how much they love their friends, how much they love Ted and Alice. Ted and Alice at first are a little apprehensive, with Bob and Carol declaring their love for them loudly enough for people with an earshot to shoot them a quizzical look or two or ten. Then their waiter comes along with the customary, I hope the service was satisfactory, Carol turns to him with earnest passion emanating from her eyes as she questions his sincerity. Do you really? Do you really hope for that? Do you really hope that our service was satisfactory? People find it very hard to tell each other the truth. He gives her a what-the-fuck look and says it must be the wine, walks away into the kitchen. She ponders the errors of her approach, gets in touch with her feelings that she made him feel weird, feels apologetic, proceeds to get up, walk directly into the kitchen of this restaurant, track him down, walk up to him, take his hand, and kiss it, and say, you're a nice man. People shouldn't make people feel uncomfortable, and I did. And then the big bang, literally. 
Later on at home, Bob and Carol are getting into bed, and he confesses to a one-night stand he had on a recent business trip. But they're now veterans of this institute, you see, so they're in touch with their emotions. Carol considers how this information makes her feel. She thinks and thinks, and then she thinks some more, and she says, I don't feel upset. I don't feel surprised. I don't feel jealous. He can't deal with how she's not flying off the handle and says, you must feel jealous, and she responds, maybe I'm hiding something from myself. Well, let's try it once more. Let me hear it again. And he says in guilty frustration, I made it with another chick. But she rationalizes, it was just physical, right? No love? Then I don't see how I can be jealous. And she goes on to say to him that he did nothing wrong because he told her about it, because he trusted her. If he didn't tell her about it, that would have been something wrong. He's an attractive and beautiful man who loves his wife and kid, she says, and she's never felt closer to him. And in a great camera shot, she's hugging and caressing him as he looks all stunned and confused as fuck. She asks him what the woman looked like, and he says, Candace Bergen. And Carol has a knee-jerk reaction. Very quick, very instinctive. She winces. So you know this ain't over till the scorned lady sings. And the next time they get together with Ted and Alice, they get high on pot. They talk, they laugh, they live, laugh and love. Ted and Alice say goodnight, they walk outside to their car, and Carol runs out to catch up with her besties to tell them about Bob's affair. She finds it a moving, bonding moment. I want to share something beautiful with you. He told me all about it, and I just had to share it with you. I love you. I really love you. She hugs them, twirls around, and jets back into the house, burning rubber behind her as Ted's and Alice's backs are to the camera, just looking in her direction, in shocked silence. Then Ted and Alice drive home in disbelief and have a great scene together in their own bedroom as they process what Carol just told them. It unfolds like a one-act play, and it's the scene, I dare say, that got Diane Cannon and Elliot Gould their Oscar nominations. But let's hit the pause button there so that if you decide to see this, you'll have plenty of surprises left as far as the wacky directions these enlightened souls go in before riding off into the sunset. Like I said, the movie has a wise-ass kind of tone to it. It's like being whacked over the head with the free love spirit of the 60s, only for the 60s to be made the butt of the joke. At a time when it became the trendy thing to be eccentric and go against everything you'd ever been taught, when the feeling of the generation with a new explanation that Scott McKenzie sang about was, it's a new day, it just... Along comes this film, ostensibly embracing the new explanation of this generation and saying back, it just this... But let's now pivot towards today's other film, 1971's Connell Knowledge. As our story begins, it's the late 1940s at Amherst College in Amherst, Mass. Moonlight Serenade plays over the opening credits as we're treated to an eyebrow-raising dialogue exchange between two young men, friends, roommates, named Jonathan and Sandy, played by Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel. They're looking to score at a college mixer that Amherst is having with Smith College in Northampton, Mass., they spy with their little eyes a young Smith student played by Candace Bergen, years before she became Murphy Brown in the 80s. You half expect Garfunkel to burst into his portion of Sounds of Silence as they watch her and the more sexually experienced Jonathan gallantly telling Sandy, Go for it. I'm giving her to you. So Sounds of Silence works his way over to her, awkwardly tries to make conversation. Susan, the stronger personality of the two, speaks first. They eventually do relax into amiability, and I do need to point out a really great piece of cinematography here. It's the perfect example of deep focus, with Jonathan standing in the background in the doorway at the right of the frame, watching them as they both are having their conversation at the left. It's a masterclass in editing, because we're visually privy to all three of them at this moment. Sandy and Susan begin seeing each other, 
At this beginning stage of their relationship, Sandy says what he thinks are all the right things to her. Yeah, he does hope eventually to go all the way with her, but he's also looking for an emotional connection. He's more sensitive and more soulful than the misogynistic Jonathan, who's the type of pig who would take a girl on a date to the drive-in to see clothes for the winter. But that's not to say that Sandy doesn't have his own appetite. He slowly makes his way to first and second base, as he put it in his regular progress report to Jonathan. Susan's fairly headstrong. She plans to be a lawyer, hopes to write novels eventually. And even though she's not sure at first, she soon does consent to Sandy's gradual physical advances. And once she decides to perform a sexual favor for him without going all the way, Sandy gleefully boasts to Jonathan about it. Cut to Jonathan, standing in front of a phone booth and talking into the receiver. He's calling up Susan for a date. Now on the surface, it would seem like Jonathan is in competition with Sandy. He wants whatever girl he can get his hands on. And while, yeah, that is a big part of it, I kind of get the sense that Jonathan is also after something deeper. The ability that Sandy has intuitively to connect with a woman on an emotional level. To cut right to the chase, Susan begins to cheat on Sandy with Jonathan, though Jonathan never really seems happy with the fact that she seems to be more on Team Sandy when it comes to any kind of emotional attachment. She tells Jonathan that he's stronger than Sandy, that Sandy is so helpless, that she knows how much Sandy loves her, that he looks at her with such trust. And that is where Jonathan goes all apeshit, hollering at her that she should love him the same way that she loves Sandy. He's supposed to be in love with me, he's yelling at her. And then Susan's approach to Sandy, it can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. She tells him that she's no good for him. Now, is this a guilty conscience? Is this her trying to gently push him away from her? Is this smooth-talking manipulation on her part? Either way, Jonathan gets more and more confrontational with her. Tell me my goddamn thoughts. You can with him. And she miserably replies, I can't with you. I just can't. I won't get into how this love triangle all plays out, but let's just say that we're still in the 1940s at this point, and remember that we follow these characters into the early 1970s. And Margaret comes into the story as another love interest for Jonathan. Her story arc is mind-blowing in the misogyny and self-loathing. The two of them have a scene together that apparently resulted in both actors losing their voices for a while after shooting it. And margaret walked away with the film's sole Oscar nomination, Best Supporting Actress. And Rita Moreno makes a brief but impactful appearance as a prostitute. She's barely recognizable, with her worn-out expression and pale face, and again, it's a memorable role for her, and it's proof that very limited screen time doesn't necessarily mean that an actor cannot milk it for all it's worth. Let's forge ahead to the behind-the-scenes fun facts, so proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies may include plot spoilers and the endings, so spoiler alert, now. So what exactly do these horny kids, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, have to offer in the way of fun facts? Number 5. When Alice, played by Diane Cannon, has her breakthrough in therapy and decides that she's too repressed and uptight, her therapist is played by Donald Muick. He was co-writer and director Paul Mazursky's real-life therapist, and also appeared in two other films of his, 1980's Willie and Phil, and 1986's Down and Out in Beverly Hills. Number 4. According to Paul Mazursky, the script was controversial. He said, quote, They were afraid of it. The first person I went to, we wrote a treatment, a five-page treatment, and the first guy at some studio said, it's too dirty, it's too filthy. 
I said, well, what if I get Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward to play one couple? He said, that'll be clean, end quote. Number three. Four years after this film captured the zeitgeist of the times, there was a short-lived TV sitcom adaptation that, according to IMDb, lasted 12 episodes. Elizabeth, the daughter of Ted and Alice, is played by a young Jodie Foster. Bob is played by Robert Yorick, who'd go on to star in Spencer for Hire in the 80s. And Carol is played by Ann Archer, who would be Oscar-nominated years later for playing Beth Gallagher, Michael Douglas's spurned wife in Fatal Attraction. And if you want to hear more about Fatal Attraction, just go back to episode 16 of this podcast. Number two. The place where the retreat is at the beginning of the film is only referred to in generic terms as the Institute, but it has been confirmed that it's a very thinly veiled reference to the real-life Esalen Institute, which first started getting famous in the late 1960s because of its New Age group therapy sessions. And number one. Natalie Wood, the one who at the time brought the star power to the cast, chose to forfeit her salary of $750,000 and instead took 10% of the film's gross, which ended up being a cool $3 million that she walked off with. As for carnal knowledge, try these little nuggets of knowledge that are not so carnal. Number five. It was originally written as a stage play by Jules Pfeiffer, but director Mike Nichols felt that it would work better as a film. It's not hard to envision it as a play as you watch in the movie, but the deep focus shots that I mentioned, and a lot of the lingering close-ups, they make it a uniquely cinematic experience. There is a great shot of Candace Bergen throughout an entire scene from beginning to end, just laughing and laughing and laughing as Sandy and Jonathan, off-camera, are on either side of her, and she's just turning to look at one, then the other, listening to the two of them talking, trying to make her laugh. It's like she's watching a tennis match. It sounds odd the way I'm explaining it, but believe me, once you see it, you see that there's more to Candace Bergen than just a TV sitcom. Number four. In November 1988, the play version finally opened at the Pasadena Playhouse in California. Gregory Harrison, Mary Lou Henner of the TV sitcom Taxi, and David Marshall Grant all led the cast. Playwright and screenwriter Jules Pfeiffer decided to keep the story in the same time frame as the film, beginning in the 40s, ending in the early 70s. So in this 1988 adaptation, there was no acknowledgement of the reality and the fears of the AIDS virus. As he said to the LA Times at the time, quote, that would have required a complete rewrite, end quote. Number three. In his memoir, Backing Into Forward, Jules Pfeiffer said that Mike Nichols told him he was considering Jack Nicholson for the role of Jonathan. Pfeiffer went to go see Jack Nicholson in the film Easy Rider and thought that this actor with the, quote, hip Henry Fonda stance and twangy New Jersey drawl, end quote, had nothing in common with, quote, the young Jewish misogynist, end quote, at the center of the script. Mike Nichols told him, <laughs> quote, trust me, he's going to be our most important actor since Brando, end quote. Number two. Casting could have been. Anne Margaret was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her performance as Bobby, as I said, but other actresses in contention for the role included Karen Black, Ellen Burstyn, Joan Collins, Jane Fonda, Raquel Welch, and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice's very own Natalie Wood. And number one. A New York Times article delayed July 3rd, 1973, will give you all the details. 
but the Georgia Supreme Court upheld a June 21st pornography conviction of movie theater operator Billy Jenkins. By screening the film, he was charged with the violation of the law of the state of Georgia that describes obscenity as material that, quote, considered as a whole, applying community standards appeals mostly to shameful or morbid interest in nudity, sex, or excretion, and is utterly without redeeming social value, end quote. But this conviction that the Georgia Supreme Court upheld was ultimately overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. And with that, it's time to announce the results of this week's online poll. So the poll question for this episode, number 53, was, if you had to pick one, which movie couple would you take romantic advice from? Natalie Wood and Robert Culp as Bob and Carol? Jack Nicholson and Anne Margaret as Jonathan and Bobby? Diane Cannon and Elliot Gould as Alice and Ted? Arat Garfunkel and Candace Bergen as Sandy and Susan. On my public Facebook group, Silver Screeners, same name as this podcast, there were two votes for Alice and Ted, three for Jonathan and Bobby, and five for Natalie and Bob. And on Twitter, 50% of the votes went to Alice and Ted, 25% to Carol and Bob, and 25% to Sounds of Silence and Murphy Brown. So in aggregate, it looks like Carol and Bob came out on top. A big thank you to all of you who voted. I really love the involvement. And keep your eyes open on my socials for the next poll. Just check out the Silver Screeners group on Facebook, or you can follow me on Twitter at FilmBuff1974, as well as Instagram, FrankMendoza1974, or you can email SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. And now it's time to head on over to the trivia segment. In each episode, there is a different trivia question that is directly and sometimes indirectly related to the movies or the people in them. Anyone and everyone is invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names in case that makes anybody feel uncomfortable. So know this ahead of time that I always do first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout out and a movie related meme sent your way with a personalized greeting. And it doesn't matter when you send in your answer. It doesn't matter what episode you're listening to, if it's farther back, if it's most recent. Answer any trivia question from any episode at any time. You will get your meme and your shout-out. And if you're a creator, if you write music, if you design websites, if you're a podcaster, a writer, if you have a show coming up, if you go all Sinatra and you're a puppet, a popper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king, if you've been up and down and over and out, I'm always happy to give your stuff a shout-out. Just say the word. So last time, we took a look at two boundary-pushing sex comedies from 1959, Pillow Talk and Some Like It Hot, the latter of which starred Marilyn Monroe. The question was, when Marilyn Monroe famously sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, who was the president she was singing to? Was it A, Richard Nixon, B, Dwight Eisenhower, C, John Kennedy, or D, Lyndon Johnson? And the answer is JFK, of course. And can I shamelessly suggest that you go back to episode 38 to hear about the 1991 Oliver Stone film JFK, if you haven't yet. Hell, even if you already have heard it, give it a second go, and much obliged. A movie-themed meme with a personalized greeting goes out to my buddy Chris from the Movie Psycho podcast, who sent a kick-ass photo of JFK wearing a cool pair of shades. Also, to regular listener and film talk attendee, the one, the only... Ed R., as well as the always enthusiastic film fan, Mary C. 
Thank you all for your contributions. And to all of you listening, interaction and fun is what it's all about. So please jump in and play this trivia segment anytime. Such as now with this week's question. Natalie Wood, star of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, was a child actress in her day. Like Candace Bergen and Connell Knowledge, Wood also played a character named Susan, a little girl named Susan Walker, in what 1947 Christmas classic that was actually released in June, not November or December? I'll give you a little hint. Takes place in New York City. Maureen O'Hara plays her mother, and it was remade with Mrs. Doubtfire's youngest daughter in the Natalie Wood role in 1994. Send in your answers, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments or anything from today's episode or any episode that you've listened to, hit me up on my socials. Once again, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter. The Film Group Silver Screen is on Facebook. Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram. Or you can email silverscreenispod at gmail.com. And that's all for episode 53. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And I'd be eternally grateful if you could just take a second to rate or review this show on Apple, iTunes, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you're using. It's always a big help in terms of boosting the show's visibility, and it's helpful for me to get feedback as well. I'm always happy to get any honest suggestions, open to any suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, wishing you good health, good weather, and good movies. And until next time, keep on screening. And I leave you now with the soothing sounds of the mood music that Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice threw on in order to get themselves in the mood for their ultimate failure of an orgy.